I hope you have a Bible. We're going to be in John 8 tonight. Uh, we're going to read through, hopefully, the first um, 20 verses, I believe, we'll get through tonight. Um, we've been talking about some pretty heavy and pretty big themes over the last couple of weeks, um, really the last two weeks, um, studying John 6, studying John 7. We've talked a lot about how Jesus is the source of life. Um, Jesus in John 6, he's there feeding the 5,000, um, but he contrasts himself with the miracle of the bread and talks about he um, being the bread from heaven, right? Giving us something that we can't get from material things. In John 7, he uh, crashes one of the biggest Jewish festivals and parties of the year and says that the religious festivities, the religious customs were not quenching their soul's desires. It wasn't helping them get to God, but rather he could help them get to God. So, uh, again, we haven't just talked about it, but we've listened to Jesus talk about it. And to show you some highlights from what we've studied um, and we've heard from Jesus the last couple of weeks, um, over in John 6, verse 54, Jesus said, Whoever feeds off my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He said in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, Jesus is trying to say, listen, I know your eyes are on what you can see and what you can taste and what you can handle and what you can hold, but I've showed you something that's far greater than that. And I know that, 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 that the bread that I've given you quenched a hunger inside, but really if you want to have the hunger of your heart quenched, you have to take my flesh, my blood, my, the entirety of who Jesus presented himself to be, the source of life. Jesus, you've got to consume me. You've got to feed off of me. You've got to live off of me because my spirit gives you the life that you're looking for, not anything of the flesh. And then last week we read from John 7 that Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, he stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, not the fountain, not this religious system, not these things that are so formal and so tradition that, that, it, that, it's, that you're accustomed to, but come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus, again, again, um, he says two very similar things to two very different audiences. In John 6, he's in front of masses of people who've come to follow him because of the miracles that he's done, the treasures that he has provided and might provide even more. He contrasts the life that is found in God and in him compared to what was found in the world and the treasures and the material things. And then in John 7, he's in Jerusalem, one of the biggest festivals of the year. He stands up during a very sacred ceremony as they're about to draw water from the fountain in the middle of the city. He says, wait a minute, that water from that fountain will not do you any good. But I will give you the life that you're looking for. Drawing attention away from the fountain to himself. And in both instances, Jesus makes it pretty clear that he, not the world, that he, not religion, that he, not any effort or action of man, is the only starting point and dwelling place for a relationship with God. That if you want to know where to start, you've got to start with Jesus. And if you want to know where to stay, you've got to stay with Jesus. So don't move past Him. Stay with Him. But you're not going to get to God outside of, apart from, any other way than Jesus. John has been telling a story that makes it pretty clear. He crafts a narrative around this from the beginning of the book. His goal is that we would believe and have life in the name of Jesus. And we underscored it at the very beginning. We breeze right past it back in chapter 1. But John actually says that in chapter 1, verse number 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That John says, if I'm going to describe Jesus, and you know John used a lot of ways to describe Jesus, but John says, 
It's like Jesus was the light of God. The light from heaven that showed us the way. We did not realize we were in darkness until we met Jesus, and then we realized, wow, it was dark, but now it's bright. And ever since I met Jesus, the darkness has tried to prevent me from getting to and staying with him, but it has not worked. It will not overcome. It will not overwhelm. But light will defeat darkness. Tonight, as John continues to ramp the story and focus on Jesus, who truly Jesus truly is, we're going to see this idea that Jesus is light come full circle and center stage. With John again drawing contrast between an old way and the only way. Now, at the end of chapter 7, we find the council members, remember they convened to try to discuss what are we going to do with Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Jewish government leaders, the religious leaders. They came together and they thought they, 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 they're just overwhelmed. Jesus ruined another festival. He took the attention again. And they come together to decide, hey, what are we going to do with this guy? We, can't, we don't have the authority to kill him. We don't have any credible dirt on him to accuse him before Rome. What are we going to do? And, and, and this meeting, like so many before it, it ends without any real solution being arrived at. And then chapter 7 ends, and it begins into chapter 8 with a transition. As all the Jewish leaders go to their homes throughout Jerusalem, John thinks it's important to know that Jesus left the scene that day and went to the Mount of Olives, that would overlook the city. So notice how chapter 7 ends and chapter 8 begins. Most of your Bibles will have those verses kind of mashed together um, in this new section or in this next section. 753 says, Everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So everybody else disperses to the houses that they have around the temple, around the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. So I want you to try to imagine the view that Jesus would have had looking out from the mountains. The Mount of Olives would have been adjacent to the eastern side of Jerusalem. It would have allowed you to have a vantage point that would gaze the entire city, overlooking all the wonders and spectacle of Jerusalem. And as the sun would have risen the next day, Jesus would have had a spectacular view. There's a reason why there's a market for paintings of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, because it's truly an awesome sight. A modern-day uh, vantage point from the Mount of Olives would give, you can see, it allows you to see the entire city. And, of course, the center of the city, now being home to a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, was formerly home to the temple built in honor of the Jewish God. So the Mount of Olives really wasn't a high place, but it was positioned in such a way that you could get a glimpse of the entire city of Jerusalem. Early in the morning, as the bakers fired up their stoves, as the blacksmiths heated up their ovens, the smoke would rise against the horizon, and the lanterns around the city wall would start to shine brighter in conjunction with the new sources of light. And the brightest light of them all would come from the center of town. Because where the mosque is now, there was, of course, the temple built by David, or built by Solomon, rebuilt by Nehemiah, and then perfected by Herod the Great. And this temple would have been high and lifted up at the center of the city on a mountain, on a hillside itself, and a depiction of what this might have looked like back in the day. A glorious uh, infrastructure, glorious building um, that would have been some 144,000 uh, 144, square feet, Five football fields wide, and the space uh, within the walls would have been over 20 football fields worth of square footage. Not only were there constant lamps burning within and on the temple courtyard, but there were 
four, 86 feet tall. Imagine that. 86 feet tall, four columns um, of Olympic like torches that would be on each corner of the temple mount that could be seen from the entire city for miles away. It would be reminiscent of the pillar of fire that led the Jews out of Exodus. That was the idea of these 86 feet tall torches that would be lit all the way up with a burning, blazing flame at the very top. From miles away, you could see this temple mount. You could see this city, and it truly looked like a city on a hill that could not be hid. To add to the wonder in the spectacle, Herod the Great had adorned the temple and refaced the temple with white limestone. And it would cause the, the, the wall, the, the, the city, the temple structure, the foundation, the, the, the rock to reflect light and sparkle in the spotlight of a rising sun and would glisten with the backdrop, at the backdrop of all of those flames. And maybe that helps you understand why the temple became known as the light of the world. For the light it reflected in the lamps that always burned, if you heard someone refer to the temple as the light of the world, you understood what they meant, because it was the brightest light in a very dark world. Symbolically, it brought hope and truth of God that the temple stood for and made known. And early every morning, think about this, early every morning, people of all kinds and ways of life would ascend the southern stairs to the temple courtyard seeking out this truth and hope. But here's the thing about the temple courtyard. While it invited and welcomed many, it was very dividing in its design and layout. Just to kind of give you an overview of the temple, um, that's kind of an overhead aerial depiction of what the temple would have looked like. And I've got four stars up there. The four stars represent the four different areas of, of uh, community in the temple, um, in the temple community, in the temple mount. There would have been a place that only priests could go. There was a place that women were told to go and wait and have time and have their own uh, little uh, gathering. There was a place for Gentiles and there was a place for common Jews. But these four categories were just some, were just four of many places that were uh, divided up in the temple mount. So even though it welcomed everybody, it was a very divisive place that you couldn't fellowship with just anybody based on your ethnicity, based on your heritage, based, based on your social status, based on your gender. You would have to be walled off to a certain place waiting in a different line for your turn at the altar. It was a place for Gentiles to gather, for women, for commoners, for rich, for priests, and a place, a place for the high priest. Jesus would have arrived, arrived here as the activity really began to heat up. As soon as day had broken, the altars were lit and animals began being herded in. Sheep, oxen, goats, and doves would be brought to the stair away by unclean shepherds, and the unclean shepherds were only allowed to go so high, so the priests and the Levites would meet them halfway down. Uh, really, the Levites would meet them halfway down and say, listen, Mr. Shepherds, we, we're thankful that y'all have raised these sheep for us, but y'all are too unclean to get any higher up the temple mount, so y'all better go back down the mountain, and we'll say a prayer for you and pray for God to forgive you, but good luck, because y'all are pretty dirty. But thank you for raising these sheep for us, because they're going to help us forgive everybody else's sins, but not y'all. So the shepherds would leave, right? And they weren't offended. They just knew that was their job, right? They took care of the sheep on the flocks by night and, and, and day. They weren't allowed in and they expected, never expected to be allowed in. But the shepherds would bring these animals up the temple stairs. The, the Levites would get them and bring them in and they would prepare them for sacrifice. And many were put up for sale uh, for those who came without a lamb. 
or those who brought a lamb that had a blemish. The smells and sounds of the courtyard were palpable. Now, I think we have this idea that the temple was this really buttoned-up religious place, and it was, but the one thing that really made the temple stand apart from any church service you will ever be a part of is it smelled pretty bad. And the reason it smelled pretty bad was because they were slitting animal throats a hundred times a minute, right? They were cutting lambs. They were killing oxen. They were burning sheep. They were burning goats. They were burning dogs, right? They were putting animals on the fire as quick as they could because you got to think about it. Not just the cities of Jerusalem, people of Jerusalem, but people from all over the world, right? Jews had spread around everywhere. People from all over the world were bringing their animals to the temple. We're making pilgrimage to the temple. Thousands upon thousands a week were brought to this place and slain for the sins of of Jerusalem and Judah. The smells in the courtyard were palpable as animals were brought in and slaughtered left and right. The mood of the courtyard was pretty tense as people would come with hopes that something would change when they would visit the altar. And they weren't just looking for an external change because you've got to imagine if you came, came kind of off the routine, um, maybe you had a rough night, and you thought, well, you know what, you know, I, I got I to gotta go make this right with God, and I don't really know what really to do, but I'm just going to go up these stairs, I'm going to go to this booth, I'm going to pay a, a, an outrageous amount of money for a sheep, and I'm going to take this sheep to this altar, and this priest is going to take it from me, and then he's going to take it to another priest, and they're going to go behind this curtain, and I'm not going to get to see what's going on over there, but I'm going to hope that they're going to do something for me because I really need some guilt washed away. But see, the thing is, when you would go and do this, you know, you wouldn't really feel anything, right? You would just hope that somehow you would be impressed or something would happen in the moment that would make you feel better. But the reality is, you actually left feeling worse. Because the transaction really didn't do anything, and you really didn't get any proof. You just hoped that somehow, not only was God pleased with you, but you hoped that the guilt would leave your conscience, it would leave your heart. But it rarely did. And it didn't help that everybody there made, made you feel like you were inferior. Everyone there made you, made you aware that they were good, you were not. They were holy, you were unholy. And they were doing the job to keep you in with God because if they didn't, you would have no hope at all. Everyone that visited this, this structure, they could see the lights glare, but they longed so desperately to feel the light's warmth. Right? The, the, the light of the temple was so bright and, of course, God is holy. We're not. They, they didn't mind feeling this way. They expected to feel this way. But deep down inside, everybody there thought, you know what? It would be great to feel a little bit warm. It would be great to feel as if God is, is pleased with us or God has forgiven us. The temple's judgment loomed to the masses while the temple's grace only seemed to fall on the insiders. And there were so few that even got to go inside. Because only a few got to visit the inside and truly experience the presence and power of God. But on this morning, on this morning, something felt different in the temple courtyard. It was almost as if God had stepped out of the holy place and was visiting the people, visiting the commoners. No one would say it out loud, but everybody knew something felt different. And perhaps it had something to do with verse number 2. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. As in, everybody came up the southern stairs with their sheep and with their lamb and with their goat and with their turtle doves, right? Everybody came up the, the structure. And there was Jesus standing in the courtyard. And everybody thought, 
Jesus. The one that always makes us feel like God is so close. The one that always reminds us that God is near. The one that has done so many incredible things. The one that has, has, has showed us all these miracles, all these wonders. The altar can wait. The temple can wait. And they begin to surround Jesus as if he has something more important to give them than what the priests in the temple did. And of course, the religious leaders anticipated Jesus would find his way to the temple while in town, and they were not really pleased with the scene they found they saw that day. Perhaps that's why that morning, as the sun was rising, as it beamed down on the glistening temple mount, as people began to ascend the staircase with goats and lamps and oxen, as, as they watched this develop, as they saw people go toward Jesus in the outer court, not toward, toward, the, court, toward the, the altar and toward the temple's entrance, Perhaps that's why they devised a plan. And maybe they had this plan already in the making. We don't know, but the story tells us that they escorted a woman up those stairs that morning. While many escorted animals for sacrifice, they escorted a woman bound at her hands with ropes without any clothes on for dramatic effect. They brought a woman to be judged. And here's the thing, I'm sure, I'm sure this woman had walked up the stairs before with an offering, but this time she was to be the offering. Because no animal would be good enough for her. She was considered too far gone. And there was a verse in the Old Testament that said she should be killed. No animal could forgive her sin. No hope could be found for her in the Torah as she was dragged up the stairs, the light beamed down, and she saw all she felt was judgment. We don't know if they had just called her, maybe they had kept her locked up for this occasion, but what we do know is they came to see Jesus that day to see what he would say and do about this woman who so clearly deserved judgment, who they were ready to kill, ready to stone. They had the stones in their hands. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus already assembled the crowd as from the southern entrance of the plaza, the crowd began to break and begin to divide as this entourage of leaders, Levites and scribes and Pharisees, as they came through the masses, they drug, they drug, they drug this woman to Jesus. They didn't bring anything for themselves that day because they had brought this woman who owed so much more than they could ever owe. They didn't have to start the day by offering a lamb on the altar because they had this woman to offer. They intended to bring her to God for judgment. But little did they know that bringing her to Jesus would save her life. Story goes in verse number four. They said to Jesus, Teacher, or verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. To make it very clear. And we didn't just hear about it, we found her in the very act. Now Moses, Moses, I think, have you, read of, have you read Moses before Jesus? Moses, the one who started all this, the one who was on the mountain with God, Moses says, commands even, that such should be stoned. And we have a verse ready for you in case you don't know that, because we don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, because we've read it, we've memorized it actually, Jesus. I don't know if you have never done that, but we have. 
Moses commands us to stone this woman, but what do you say? Because you've made yourself out to be somebody pretty great, and everybody listens to you, and you've got everybody's attention, and everybody's just talking, oh, Jesus this and Jesus that. He's the bread of life. He's this. He's that. I mean, we've heard enough about you, Jesus, but, you know, we, we've, we, we've, we figure that since you are so great, and you've made yourself so great, you must have something to say, but you're not going to go against Moses, are you? What do you say, Jesus? And of course, verse 6 tells us they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, if you actually know what Leviticus says, because of course they clearly didn't, Leviticus says that the man and the woman should be brought, that both offenders in any act of sin should be brought and should be stoned, but they aren't really worried about the fine print, are they? Religions never worry about the fine prints, and usually the margins between insiders and outsiders get wider and wider, farther and farther apart, and people like this woman are the ones that suffer for it. Who knows if this woman was actually caught or not. Clearly, she probably had a reputation that gave them the ability to do this, but we don't know if she was actually caught or not. We don't know what the other man or where the other the man was at and whether he was one of them. Even we don't know, but she had no voice, Right? She was brought to a place controlled by sacred men with sacred texts that they interpreted. She had no voice. She had no say. She had no representation. The Scripture says that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with His finger as though He did not hear them. As if He was ignoring them. And maybe they thought, we've got Him! We've trapped him because he can't, he can't possibly say something against Moses. I mean, and if you've read the story, you know that Jesus has kind of set himself up as kind of an antagonist to the Jewish religion. That he claims to believe in the Jewish God, he teaches the Jewish scriptures, but he always talks about how Moses says this, but I say that. As if he's somehow equal to Moses, or as if he's somehow greater than Moses. See, Jesus has set himself up at being an alternative, even a more authoritative source of God's truth compared to Moses, compared to the law, compared to the Old Testament. And Jesus had set himself, had been set up against Moses, and he didn't downplay it. He leaned into it all the time. Moses gave you this bread in the desert, but I give you this bread, right? He talked about how he was doing something different and greater, but now it was Jesus versus the Bible, right? It was Jesus versus Leviticus chapter 22. It was Jesus versus the Word of God. He couldn't possibly go against it. The Jews thought, if we can pin him down as being against the law, being against Moses, we can pin him down with charges worthy of the death penalty. And they reveled at the thought that their plan might work because he's got to go along with them, which means if he goes along with them, he'll lose the crowds. And if he dares goes against the religious leaders, then he'll risk losing his life. He can't win. He was in a corner. How would he squirm his way out of this, this one? And they high-fived, and they were just you know, looking at each other thinking, we got him, we got him, we got him. Why didn't we think about this earlier? But as the sun was ris- rising up, the Son of God knelt down, and he wrote on the ground. Now there have been books and sermons and wiser people than me speculate what did he write on the ground But I think if we understand the gravity here, Jesus versus Moses, Jesus versus Leviticus, Jesus versus the Old Testament, Jesus versus their idea of God, right? He was writing on 
the dirt. When's the last time, when's the first time we heard or we hear of the finger of God writing something down? Exodus chapter 31 tells us that God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Sinai two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So here's Jesus writing on the ground. And I don't think they they got this, but I think Jesus is trying to send a message. I think he's leaning into this moment. Because in this moment, it's the finger of God versus the finger of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus is God, but they didn't, right? They didn't believe that he was. So you can imagine in this scenario, it's God's finger. He wrote the Old Testament, right? You can't go against that. Or it's Jesus' finger. Would Jesus' finger and Jesus' words be as authoritative as the fire of God that sketched the stone tablets? Would a man writing on the dust of the earth be as God writing on the tablets of stone with fire? As they railed as they railed against him, agging him on, they continued to show their true colors, the bloodlust against the weak, their lust for power over Jesus. Verse 7 says, when they continued asking him, like they agged him on, the scripture, the, the words there seemed to suggest that they were just nagging at him. Come on, Jesus, do we have you cornered? Do you not have an answer for us? Quit writing on the ground. Speak up if you've got an answer. So Jesus famously stands up, raised himself up, dusts himself off, And said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw, let him cast the first stone. Stands up and he says, Guys, I thought about it. And I've I've come up with a pretty even solution. I know what the scripture said, Leviticus 22, that you should bring the man and the woman caught in adultery and both of them should be stoned. We'll ignore the fact that it's just one of them. And I don't know if one of y'all was the man, but hey, I'll let y'all, I know Jesus knew, right? But they didn't know that he knew. But hey, he says, listen guys, I know the Bible. The Bible says this woman should be stoned. But we got to figure out who's worthy, who's credible to cast the stone. I mean, because you can't throw a stone. If you're a sinner, then you no, have no wise, no sense and no place to judge somebody else. So listen, if one of you is clean, incredible, and guiltless, cast the first stone. I'll be back on the ground writing down stuff while y'all decide who's going to throw the first rock, but y'all just go ahead and think about that because that's really the only way we can solve this. So the Scripture says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. But think about this. They had been coming up those stairs since they were kids, and what had they been coming up those stairs to do? To offer a sacrifice for their sins. They could not deny that they were sinners. How dare they drag another person up the stairs they climbed since they were children? What monsters had they become? And just as God wrote on the tablets twice, because Moses broke the first ones, Jesus writes on the ground twice. In verse number 9, it it tells us that those who heard it, he he, he hasn't saying anything. They heard as in as he wrote on the ground, their conscience were so thin they could hear him writing on the dirt. They saw the light. It convicted their hearts. Those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in their midst. Eldest to youngest, those who had been there the most to those who had been there the least, they walked away one by one. And there, it's just Jesus and the woman left.
Can you imagine what was going through this woman's head? I've been in a scene similar to this. Obviously not on the Temple Mount, not someone caught in the act, but I've been in situations where someone is being judged. Many of you, maybe you've been in courtrooms, you've been in situations, maybe you've been in arguments where someone is just the center of the conversation and everyone in the room is hurling things at them. If they had something to throw, they probably would, but it's just the words of insult and condemnation. Maybe you've been that person before. And thank God you've come out of it. Thank God that you're, I'm sure, I'm sure it's still, you're, there's still wounds that get sensitive in these conversations. But I've been around someone who I observed as if they were being condemned, as if they were being stoned. But can you imagine what this woman was going through? Can you imagine what her thoughts were as she wondered, as, as her head was held low, as she no doubt was covering her face, covering herself as much as she can? I wonder if she just thought, if I could ever get away, if I somehow get away alive, I will never, I will never come back to a place like this. This temple, this mount is a place of judgment. I feel so condemned. I feel so judged. I feel so broken. I am so alone. I bet she wondered. Who's going to throw the rock first? But the scripture says that she was left alone, and the woman standing, Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in her midst. But I think at some point in this scenario, as everybody began to leave, I think that there began to be a presence around this woman that she had never felt before. And I think she probably began to wonder, you know, what is this feeling? What is this, this, this presence? I don't, I've never felt, never sensed this before. And it says in verse 10 that Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? I mean, we've all agreed you're guilty, right? You're caught in the very act. You don't have no voice, no word in the fight. We all agree that you are guilty, but no one is here to condemn you. What are we going to do about this? In verse number 11, she said, No one, Lord. There's nobody here to accuse me. I don't know what happened. I can't explain it, but I, 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 I'm actually speechless. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine the words as they come across this woman's ears? She had been literally drugged up those steps. Spit on, ridiculed, cursed at, mocked the subject of all of this cruelty and all of this scorn and all of this nonsense. And Jesus says these words, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus says to the woman, I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than the law. I'm greater than the temple. I know I don't have the time. I'm not going to take the time to give you a theological explanation of all this, but I want you to hear this loud and clear. I am greater than the things that you have been told that condemn you. I am greater than those things. I don't condemn you. I don't force this debt on you. I am taking, excuse the typo, I am taking this debt from you. You hear that, lady? I am not forcing this debt on you. I am taking this debt from you. You have the opportunity right now to walk out of this room of judgment, out of this courtroom. You are debt free. Don't worry, don't worry about what I'm going to do with the debt. I'll take care of it. You are free. 
He freed her from the bondage of sin. He encouraged her that she could feel the warmth the temple was always meant to bring. And notice how Jesus communicates the truth. God doesn't condemn you. Sin doesn't control you. God has forgiven you. God has freed you. Notice the order in which he communicates the truth. He doesn't say, listen woman, if you don't straighten up, you're not going to make it in life. If you don't stop sinning, you're toast. You're done for. Notice how he talks to this woman as if he values her, as if he loves her, as if he feels like she's important, right? He says to her first and foremost, I'll deal with your sin later, but I want you to hear this loud and clear. I don't condemn you. God doesn't condemn you. God has forgiven you. Whatever you do with that is up to you. But listen, you have nothing to worry about in terms of how you stand before God. You are forgiven. You are saved. And the benefit of that is sin no longer controls you and God has freed you from your past. I can't make you always walk in line of that grace, in line of that freedom, but I can promise you I'm never going to take it away. You hear that? I don't condemn you. See, Jesus doesn't shine the light of judgment on the broken law. He shines the light of grace on the broken soul because that's what God cares the most about. See, people act like God gets angry just because His law is broken. That if God, God's up in heaven, He had all these laws, and He didn't know what to do with them, so He made people to keep them. Right? I think this is how we understand God sometimes. God had this big library of laws. Well, angels, what are we going to do with all these laws? We keep them, so we need to make some people who might mess up every once in a while so we can have some fun. I think that's how we understand and portray God sometimes. That's not how it works, right? God made people, and God gave laws to help people keep safe, right? He made people and then he said, I love y'all. Here's what you need to do to not get in trouble. But even if you do get in trouble, I'm not mad at you. I'm not just angry because my law was broken. I'm not angry at you because you broke my law. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God's response to broken laws is with a broken heart. Because it means there's a broken soul. God moves in Genesis 3 to redeem creation, not because He is angry at broken laws, but He is tragically heartbroken over broken souls. God wants to save and heal the broken souls. That's why Jesus stands loud and proclaims in verse number 12, I am the light of the world. Let me hear y'all. Let me make this clear, y'all. The temple, it's not the light of the world. This temple mount, it can't save anybody. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees said, You bear witness of yourself? Your witness is not true. Are you talking about yourself? Are you saying on those stairs, on that platform, that you are greater than the temple, Jesus? He says, Absolutely. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. You all know where I came from and where I'm going. And I'm not going to give you all a lecture today about who I am. I've made that clear enough. But here's what I'm here to do. You're, you judge according to the flesh. I judge nobody. That's what he's here to say. I'm on this temple to reroute the system. I'm on this platform to change the narrative. This light is not to judge. This light is to open eyes and heal hearts. I judge 
No one. He says to you and He says to me, He says to everyone, He came to illuminate the hope of God in a way the temple had failed to do. He says, I am the light of the world. If you can't make it to me, don't worry. I'm coming to you to show you the way to be the way. And in this moment, He redefines and He relocated the temple mount. As in, when we say come to the altar, we don't say come to a place. We say come to a person. A person who says it's already been done for you. Wherever we are, wherever we kneel and surrender, yes, Jesus says, I'm talking about myself. Look down at verse 18. I am one who bears witness of myself. The Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said, where is your Father? Because they don't think he's talking about God. Jesus says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury of the temple mount as he taught in the temple And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Is that not what the scripture says? If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is and what God is like, look at Jesus and interpret everything else through him. God is light. God is warm. God is grace. God is light, and light is life. The chorus of that song we sang. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever reign. Church, that is the hope of knowing Jesus. That is the hope of being a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, that is who is inviting you tonight. That is who invites you every single day. I don't condemn you. Sin doesn't control you. I am the light from heaven. Let me pray for you. Father, we're thankful. We're so thankful that this light has shined down on us. God, I'm thankful that you have, in your love and in your grace, you opened the gate wide for us. Even though the temple loomed down and condemned and judged, you came down to save and to love. Father, I pray this would be an encouraging word to everybody here tonight. I I trust everybody is saved. I trust everybody knows you as their Lord. But God, as somebody who still sins, as somebody who still feels judged and condemned and disqualified, Lord, to hear these words, I don't condemn you. Sin doesn't control you. Lord, that reminds me of who I am in Jesus and it empowers me and it frees me to be who you have called me to be. Lord, I know that it broke your heart to see broken souls, but you did something for all us. Jesus was broken for us that we might be put back together. Lord, thank you for the light. Thank you that you relocated the altar. It's not about a place, it's about a person. And thank you that the person of Jesus is accessible and available anytime, anywhere, any day. God, thank you so much for saving a sinner like me. Thank you for light. Thank you for love. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.